0: All right, Faye. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is this recently released CHAPS trial. And I saw on the OBG project that they've got a great summary out already.
1: Yeah. So if you want to keep up to date to all those studies that are coming out, not only at OBGYN, but also other practice changing studies and other specialties, make sure you go onto the OBG project and sign up so that you can keep up to date.
0: Fourth-year residents can get the premium project, OBG First, absolutely free. It allows you to create your own library, save resources for you to be able to access later, as well as see something like the Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas that lets you get brushed up on all those images that are going to show up on your written boards.
1: And of course, if you are a resident in general, you can get their core curriculum uh, on their website. So make sure you go ahead and go onto our website to figure out a little bit more about how to sign up for the OBG project and also how to sign up for OBG first. All right guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Criags Over Coffee. So today, guys, we're going to be addressing a listener-suggested topic, which is home births. Uh, So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today?
0: So we'll talk about um, some statistics um, in the United States, as well as in other countries about home birth. We'll review why there's been an increased movement towards home birth in the United States. Um, And we'll talk about some of the evidence for and against home birth, as well as think about who is and who is not a good candidate for home birth. Faye, it's a little funny that we're doing this podcast as two MFM fellows, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, as, Two docs training to be an MFM and who did residency and are now doing fellowship in um, large academic university hospitals. Um, you all probably think that we are totally against home birth. Um, and, you know, while we don't participate in home births ourselves, and I myself have to admit that I have never seen a home birth other than when they come into the hospital for a complication of some type, um, there is some interesting data out there uh, about home birth that we really should review and talk about the pros and cons. And I think we can do that pretty fairly, hopefully. And there's been an increasing number of patients who desire home birth. So I do think that, you know, as OBGYNs, we should be able to talk about it intelligently and be able to present the data to our patients before, you know, they make, ultimately make a decision for themselves. For our reading today, we recommend the ACOG Committee Opinion 697, Planned Home Birth. All right, Nick, so take us back a little bit. What is the history
0: behind home birth? I guess that's kind of a funny question, Faye, um, because really it's like what is not the history of home birth, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Until really recent history, the home was the place for birth. Um, and the, the kind of connotation or the term home birth wasn't really coined until the 19th century because up until that point, births occurred at home and not in a birthing center or in a hospital. In the United States, though, this changed rather rapidly um, in 1900 in the US, close to 100% of births occurred at home, but by 1938, rates had fallen to 50%, and then by 1955, fewer than 1% of births were at home. So over 50 years, we went from close to 100% to fewer than 1%. Um, in other countries like the UK, this trend towards non-home births was slower, but still occurred. So By comparison, in the UK, 80% of births were at the home in the 1920s, and then only 1% by 1991. In Japan, we also see this happening much later. In 1950, there were still 95% of births occurring at home. But then over just a 25-year period, 1975, 1.2% of births were happening at home. Um, However, with this small number of home births, we are, as we've alluded to, seeing a increasing number of home births in the U.S. Um, in a recent publication between 2004 and 2009, the number of home births in the U.S. was characterized to have increased by 41%. Um, so there's definitely some patient interest in things that are going on. Now, there are many places in the world where there are still home births. And so we are talking about kind of just this a more industrialized country type of thing. We've mentioned the UK, the US, and Japan. Um, But in terms of thinking about why home birth has decreased over the years, it's hard to know exactly why or if there's like a single pinpoint reason. Um, But certainly there's been increased medicalization of birth. Um, In the hospital, there's also the promise of anesthesia, um, which is a non-birthing person. I would totally be down for an epidural, I think, if I was in that position. (laughs) Um, So, but then at the same time, there's been a decreasing trend of maternal mortality and morbidity as well as decreased infant morbidity um, that may be credited to the movement towards hospital birth. And so, you know, there are a number of things that, you know, may be patient-driven factors of seeing those benefits of anesthesia or decreased morbidity, or maybe the medicalization on its own and recognition of medical issues that can be with birth uh, it's again, it's hard to totally know why the, the change has occurred. But let's talk contemporary now, Faye, and think about like why folks today are thinking more about home birth.
1: Yeah, so um I think one note that you know we want to put out there and that you may all have caught up on is that we want to talk about planned home births, not the unplanned home birth, you know, where someone wants to come to the hospital, they just don't make it. And in terms of, you know, this question of why has there been an increased movement towards home births? Well, I think there's lots of reasons. So first of all, some birthing people like the familiar environment of their home and they don't like the medically centered birth experience that they may receive even at a birthing center or at a hospital. Some people just find that it's more relaxing for them to be at home and to have their family members and those familiar surroundings. Um, In one study published in the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health, the top five reasons that birthing people stated they liked uh, birthing in the home was one, safety, two, avoidance of unnecessary medical interventions, three, previous negative hospital experiences, four, more control, and five, comfortable and familiar environments. So certainly the top five reasons, but not the only ones. One other study found that women experienced pain differently and less negatively while in the home setting. So certainly that might also be a reason to feel when you feel more comfortable, you tend to experience pain potentially more differently. And I think that this speaks to some of the things that we um, as providers in the hospital or, you know, potentially even birth centers can do to make patients feel safer and more comfortable because clearly some patients don't feel safe in the hospital setting, even though as doctors, we would argue that the hospital is, you know, quote unquote, the safest place to deliver a baby because of all the quick access to all the resources that we have, like the blood bank, the NICU, the OR. So I think, you know, these studies give us a good way to figure out what is it that we can do in the hospital to try and make patients feel more comfortable and try to delve into the question of what is it that we're doing that makes patients not feel comfortable. And so um, I think, you know, this is beyond the scope of this podcast, but we would encourage you to listen to our episode on limiting interventions in birth um, to start that conversation. The other things, too, is to kind of look in the U.S. where there is an increasing trend in home births. And the top five states um, in 2020 were Idaho, Vermont, Wisconsin, Montana, and Utah. And uh, since I thought, you know, I'd keep looking, Nick, Washington actually came in not far behind at number six. So 2.6% of births occur in the home. Um, And I'm going to be going to Oregon. And Oregon is number eight after Hawaii. So clearly, I also need to get a lot more familiar with this (laughs) as I'm going to be practicing there. All right. So now that we've talked a little bit about this increased desire for home birth, Nick, what evidence is out there for or against home birth?
0: Yeah. So as we start to delve into this, just again, a bit of a caveat. Um, So our gold standard for evidence, of course, is the randomized controlled trial, right? And we've done some podcasts on the landmark trials in obstetrics, pretty much all of which to this point have been randomized trials. But you can't really do that ethically for home birth. Um, You can't say you go to the hospital, you stay at home um, and see what happens. So most of the data we're gonna review today comes from observational studies. Um, But as you know, with observational studies, these can be limited by methodological concerns, um, ranging from things like small sample size, lack of an appropriate control group, Reliance on things like birth certificate data or voluntary submission of data, self-reporting type of stuff. Um, A limited ability in many of these studies to distinguish accurately between what is a planned and an unplanned home birth. And then variations in the skill, training, certification, comfort of birth attendance um, with home birth and with birth in general. So maybe Faye, what we can do is kind of a little bit of a debate here, and I'll say sure. it's not necessarily <laughs> reflecting our personal views, um, but something that we can do, sort of the the for and against, the pro and con of home birth.
1: Yeah. Well, so I think you know um, we can divide this into for mom and for babies, and I would say the biggest I think proponent of the data that there is out there for moms for home births is that women don't want unnecessary interventions and if we look at all of the interventions that are done in people who have a planned out of hospital birth versus those that have a planned hospital birth, we see that there are many more interventions when patients deliver in a hospital compared to when they are outside of the hospital. I mean, there's a great table in um, the ACOG committee opinion. And if we look at things like labor induction, labor augmentation, operative vaginal delivery, cesarean delivery, blood transfusions, and hemorrhage, we see that, you know, overall, For those patients who have a planned hospital birth, they have significantly increased risk of having an induction or augmentation or operative vaginal delivery. And for patients who are delivering at home, they're much less likely to get all of these interventions. So I would argue that, you know, for patients who don't want all of these interventions, certainly it seems less likely that they will be getting these interventions when they're at home. Even in tollackers, it seems that we do a lot in the hospital for them and that those interventions are decreased when they deliver at home. So in England, for example, women planning a home trial of labor after cesarean exhibited fewer obstetric risk factors. They were more likely to deliver vaginally and had similar maternal and perinatal outcomes compared with those planning a hospital tollack in one study. And so I think there is some data that suggests that with fewer interventions, potentially there are not necessarily increased maternal risks by delivering outside of a hospital.
0: Yeah. For the counterpoint to this, I mean, you know, some of this is all well and good, Faye, but we certainly are not the UK. We're not England. Mm -hmm. And so with this respect to the data on home birth, it's hard to generalize some of that. Um, You know, one thing that really comes into play here is the possibility that other countries or other places like the UK just have better systems in place um, that may be able to accommodate or think or ensure the safety of home birth. And then there's also a lot of recent research about home birth cohorts that have kind of, I guess, bias in the studies about the selection of appropriate candidates for Mm -hmm. home birth. So remember, like, with these observational studies they're often selecting out people who would be inappropriate for home birth so you no know, pre-existing maternal disease all your gdms all your hypertensives um, you're only getting singleton fetuses typically in cephalic presentation at term with spontaneous labor and so you no know, you're basically in these trials of like, oh, look, there are fewer obstetric risk factors. They have fewer things that happen to them. You're also selecting basically a very low risk population potentially compared to what would come into the hospital. And the hospital is absorbing all of the things that just plain and obviously we feel are not acceptable home birth candidates. Um, And then, As I mentioned a moment ago, in many of these countries, they have safe methods of identifying risks and reasons to get moms to the hospital, and most places in the U.S. just don't have that. Um, The low rates of morbidity and mortality reported for planned home births from places like Ontario, British Columbia, and the Netherlands were from these highly integrated healthcare systems that have established criteria and provisions for emergency intrapartum transport for home births. In the U.S., by contrast, though, a home birth attendant um, does not always have hospital privileges or they're not always connected to a physician that has hospital privileges. And so in those environments, there's not necessarily a safe and timely way to transfer the patient intrapartum to the hospital if needed. And no... Many of you who are listening to the podcast and are residents or other professionals may have even been on the receiving end of something very tragic with a home birth um, where somebody's been laboring at home and there's a delay in transfer to the hospital as they call 911 or try and figure out where exactly a patient can go and what facility can accept them. In terms of risk of needing intrapartum transport to the hospital it's been reported as high as 23 to 37% for nulliparous women and 4 to 10% for multiparous patients. Um, again, reasons for transport can be varied, but can be things like a lack of labor progress, some sort of non-reassuring fetal status, the need for pain relief, um, hypertension or bleeding is comorbidities that can come up during labor, uh, and identification of fetal malposition, um, which can certainly be really scary at home. Um, I guess, you know, Faye, we've presented evidence and counter evidence, if you will. Um, I mean, what... I guess, should we take away about mom and home birth?
1: Yeah. So, it. I mean, I think based off of this data, at least, you know, from my research, Nick, it seems that home births can be safe for mom, but really only in selected populations. And right now, we don't have a good way in the United States of making sure that those that are planning a home birth do fit into this criteria. Um and we would also recommend that if someone really desires a home birth, that they have a birth attendant that is a certified nurse midwife who's certified by the American College of Nurse Midwifery or be attended by a physician who practices obstetrics. Both of these That these types of attendance should be within an integrated and regulated health system. And that means that they should have a plan beforehand, before this patient goes into labor, about when and how to come into the hospital if there are complications, and have a good way of communicating to the hospital and letting the hospital know that, hey, there is this patient who is laboring in the community, and these are the criteria that may send the patient into the hospital. You know, and Nick, I think we've talked about this specifically selected population a lot. So what do you think are the best criteria for that specifically selected population for those who should um, have a home birth?
0: Well, we've talked a lot about pre-existing maternal disease as one consideration. So really there should be an absence of that. Um, similarly, absent of significant diseases occurring during pregnancy, like hypertension. Um, again, a singleton fetus and cephalic presentation at term and not post dates is important as well. Um, really, induction of labor at home should really be discouraged. So we would say that the specially selected population should be a population that goes into spontaneous labor. Um, And then again, given the lack of integrated health systems throughout the United States, we would not recommend um, patients who have a prior uterine scar or are toe lacking um, and consider home birth. All right, Faye. So in terms of mom, I think we've covered a lot. Um, Let's turn over to the babies now. Sure. So I think
1: maybe our listeners have been waiting um, on bated breath for us to talk about this study that was published in the Green Journal in November of 2021. Yeah. Um, So there was this huge paper uh, that came out in the green at that time that had over 10,000 births from Washington state. And so basically in this paper, they compared the population of planned home births, which is 40% of the population that they studied, versus a planned delivery at a birth center, um, or 59.1% of the deliveries that they observed. And based off of this data, the results seemed really great. So not only did they have a C-section rate of only 11.4% for the nulliparous women in the uh, study and 0.87%, which is like ridiculously low for the multiparous patients, the perinatal mortality rate after onset of labor was 0.57 out of 1,000, which is super, Mm. super super low, even if we compare it to baseline data, um, baseline numbers from the United States. And compared to planned birth center births, planned home births had similar risks in crude and adjusted analyses overall for perinatal morbidity and perinatal mortality. And overall, the numbers, like we said, were very low anyway for any type of perinatal morbidity or mortality. So this data really seems to, you know, want to say that if we have planned home births in the selected population, because they did follow that criteria that we talked about, it seems like it's pretty safe for babies, don't you think?
0: Yeah, um, and as someone who is here in Washington now, that's all well and good for us too. But kind of one of the things that was interesting about this study and one of the important things to know about Washington is that it is a place that has um, a little bit more of an integrated system. Um, And then these births are actually very well selected and planned for for a planned home birth. They, for the most part, followed ACOG's guidelines. Most of these patients were under age 35. Only 20% of the population was 35 or older. These patients were thin, with 63% of them having normal BMIs and only 14% having a BMI over 30. Um, most of these patients, you know, for sort of the other factors surrounding healthcare, were of white race, about 85%. had commercial insurance, 64% were multiparous, and over 8% actually had four or more prior births. Um, And then only 3% of this population had gestational diabetes. I think, you know, If I had to compare that list to what I see every day at the University of Washington, that's an extremely different group. Um, And so again, I would say this is something that is a well-selected population um, for home birth, which probably skews some of the results that we see here. Um, and what I would also say too, the, you know, the Green Journal podcast, if you're listeners to that for the November edition, actually interviewed the authors of this paper, um, the primary author being a certified nurse midwife, and they admitted as much to this too, is that this was a very healthy population and a well-integrated health center. Um, and so again, you cannot generalize these results to home birth overall. Um, again, it's in a very specific context with well selected patients. And then the other piece is that there is increased perinatal morbidity for babies in other data sets, as well as increased perinatal mortality. And so, if we think about this a little bit more broadly, there's about a two and a half increased risk of perinatal mortality if we look at all data surrounding home birth, and about a threefold increased risk of neonatal seizures or serious neurological dysfunction. Now, these numbers overall are small. The risk of death is 1 to 2 in 1,000, and for seizures is about 0.4 to 0.6 in 1,000. And then even in this study from Washington State, niliparous women, if you take them alone, had a perinatal mortality rate of about 1 in a 1,000. So again, more significant than the baseline data for the study, um, which was 0.57 per 1,000. So for niliparous, almost a double the increased risk Mm -hmm. of perinatal mortality. And so again, in the committee opinion, there is a great table as well kind of outlining some of this data looking at home birth more broadly with respect to perinatal uh, morbidity and mortality. And so, again, we have to analyze these papers and analyze these thoughts um, about home birth through the lens of what is the context that home birth is occurring in? Is it a well-selected, super low-risk patient who's multiparous? Or is it a in the middle of nowhere without an integrated health system attended by an untrained attendant? Mm -hmm. Um, Because those are two very, very different scenarios. Absolutely. Um, So what can we conclude, I guess, about the baby side, Faye?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, again, everyone has the right to choose what type of birth that they have. And so, you know, certainly we are not discouraging patients from having a home birth, but I do think that this is something that we should have an intelligent conversation about. If we look at the data as a whole, neonatal outcomes are overall worse with planned home births compared to hospital births. And again, while these perinatal outcomes are overall low, Patients should still be counseled that the risk of perinatal death is approximately twice as high in a planned home birth compared to a hospital birth, and neonatal seizures and neurological dysfunction is about three times higher. And it's likely that these outcomes can be mitigated in the right population with a good plan to transfer patients or babies to a hospital and with the right birth attendant. But the fact remains that there isn't always infrastructure in place to make sure that all of these things can happen in the United States. And so until those infrastructures can be put in place, you know, I don't think that this is something that we can brush aside. So it's important to discuss these studies with your patients and especially review with them whether or not they're a good candidate. So Nick, I think that brings us kind of to the end of this specific podcast. I think, you know, one of the biggest things that we want to patients to take away is, you know, if they're planning a home birth, kind of what the selection criteria are. So can you remind us of that one more time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, again, any patient who's thinking about a home birth should discuss the risks and benefits with a licensed birth provider, someone who is comfortable with attending home births and can fairly describe the, the risks therein. Patients should, and providers for that matter, should also remember that a specifically selected population is what sets folks up to minimize risks. So again, those are absence of pre-existing maternal disease, absence of any significant pregnancy disease, and a singleton fetus and cephalic presentation at term, but not post dates. a patient who is in spontaneous labor and has no prior uterine scars. Um, We'll post all of those on our website, as well as kind of some of the data coming from the committee opinion, as well as that recent article from The Green. Um, And again, as fans of podcasts, as well as creators of podcasts, um, to get even more in-depth analysis of that paper, I'd encourage you all to listen to that Green Journal podcast from November 2021. All right, Faye, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Cree Over Coffee.
1: So guys, if you enjoyed this podcast episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review.
0: You can find us online on Twitter at CriogsOverCoffee1, on Facebook and Instagram at over Coffee. or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Send us some love and we'll send you some swag.
1: You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, as well as the weekly Rosh review question. That's going to be at www.criogsovercoffee.com.
0: And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction or a challenge to this show or any of our previous episodes, go ahead and email us, createzivercoffee at gmail.com.